Hello folks and warmest welcomes on these coldest of days to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the North Wales spare room based true crime show that strives to find for your listening those tales of dark deeds that you won't likely have heard before from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Curating these tales for you is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. My cat Peaks joins me too, although he's shit at researching, he's even worse at the writing, and his only contribution to the whole shebang is that every now and then through the episodes, you hear his little bell, as he's never far from me when I'm in, and especially when I'm recording. You guys complete the triangle, the wonderful enthusiasts of the show whose support have gotten it through to its fifth series now. It's as fabulous as it always is having you here joining me. And I hope that as the episode finds you, then you and yours are all good and you're all well. So it's absolutely bananas times here on the show right now as we rumble towards the close of the year. And it's proper one I'm sure we'll all be glad seeing the back of this one in it. What a bastard of a year. And the run-up of episodes this month are what I've decided that I'll close the fifth series off with, I think, to have a little bit of a rest and a recharge before we come back for the big six very early next year. I'll also have a load of stuff to give away as part of a competition in a couple of weeks, but more on that when I actually figure out what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it. But I am getting the feeling, enthusiast quiz, to round off the series and the year. By that time, it'll be the longest series that I've done to date. A 34-episode series, this one. Absolutely bloody crazy, that, innit? But I won't be resting on my laurels, because I've already sketched out what's coming up in Series 6. Though, I don't know how much I'll stick to that. And after a little break, I'll be back rearing to go. Well, I say break, there isn't really such thing. I'll still be prepping the next series in the background. And of course, there'll still be bonus episodes released on the show's Patreon in any downtime that I have. You're kind enough to support the show, and I wouldn't dream of missing a bonus episode for you. See? There's the bell. Big thanks out then to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shoutouts this time around going out to Peter Moore, Carrie Bailey, Kim Miller, Kay Mitchell, Neil Ritchie, Jane Kingston, Jackie Hutchinson, and Holly Valor, who's opted to become an annual supporter. Apologies if I pronounced anybody's name wrong there. Your support is so kind and much appreciated, you lovely lot. It does mean the world, and I hope that you've had chance to catch up with, if not all, then at least some of the unreleased bonus episodes you get unlimited access to as a subscriber. With the latest offering, bonus number 35, Pierpoint's last drop, going out just the other day, and a fascinating tale that one is as well. If you want to join these kind folks and get yourself listening into the case that's featured in Pierpoint's last drop, or any others from the 21 unreleased bonus enthusiasts tales that there are to date, such as Horrors Over the Holidays, Death of a Brighton Schoolboy, Murder in Lincoln, or Ripper in the Making, then doing so is easier than now expecting pubs to be shut whenever you go out, and costs less each month than a pint does. Well, when you can get one, that is, anyway. Bloody Indiana Jones couldn't find one in Wales. Quicker than doing a Covid test makes you wretch, because if you have done one, they are absolutely gopping things to do, aren't they? You can be hearing these tales and others, or even awaiting some stuff being sent to you by me, by either heading over to the Patreon site and seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, always with the podcast suffix there, or you can use the link that's always in the episode show notes. 
if if also you have cash that you haven't spent and it's been in your purses or your wallets so long that the bloody queen has started to age on the notes then why not grab yourself a bit of a treat for next year in the form of tickets for CrimeCon 2021, which is taking place in London next June. You can catch me there for the entire weekend alongside some of your favourite show hosts and high-profile guest authors and speakers from the world of true crime, where I look forward to meeting and greeting some of you guys there at what promises to be a very entertaining and interactive weekend. There's all sorts going on at it, it'll be a right do. And as the organisers have some early bird tickets still available, if you think, oh, it's going down like Chinatown and I'm there, then there's a link to the CrimeCon website in the episode show notes this week. And by using the unique code ENTHUSIAST when you come to check out, you can get yourself there at 10% discounted off the price of your tickets with an enthusiast swag bag waiting for you at the event if you've done so to say thanks very much. You just have to let me know. So this time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we have the case that I had earmarked for the previous episode, but I opted to swap it instead for the horrific tale of Enid and Maya's suffering at the hands of the monster that is Leslie Salter in the episode Handiwork. What a bastard and what an awful tale to have covered. But they're two names that I wanted remembered in Enid and Maya, and I gather that you guys share my sentiments there from the feedback that I've had concerning the episode. So the crime featured in this episode, and at least the next one, because it turned out to be a bit more complex than I'd thought, I've certainly picked them this series, I really have, it's no less horrific. It was one I'd penciled in for a show episode as far back as series one of The Enthusiast, And it was one that a guy that I was in the Air Force with was actually questioned about, so he told me when we were discussing crimes one evening in the bar. It's also a bit of a strange story, and quite a controversial one. As it unfolds, I'm sure that you'll see what I mean. And although I will jump about a bit during the tale, and you may think that I've made glaring omissions, or nothing had happened for a period of time in it, well, there's method in my madness. It's just how I've decided to structure it, and I hope all will become clear. The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime and events involving an elderly person that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, folks, please use your discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for the first part of a case that I've entitled Margaret, Murder and the Missing Motive. For our tale then, we're off back to 1995 and to Burton Fleming, a small and rural village of less than 500 people in the East Riding of Yorkshire in the UK, located very near to the border with North Yorkshire. Now Burton Fleming is that small a place that the only kind of stats you can find out about it is that it's been self-declared hedgehog friendly since 2017, whatever that means like and the house where Queen Henrietta Maria was sent into hiding at during the English Civil War is located there. I so resisted the urge to try and sound like Joe Strummer saying that, I tell you. And note, Queen Henrietta isn't one who rolls off the tongue either. Unless they're living, miserable looking, or had their heads lopped off, you don't tend to know many monarchs, really, do you? 
So whenever we can find bugger all of the usual obscure shite stats that I like to put into introducing a place, we instead take a leaf out of Adam's book and look at some of the events of the year in question to take you back for context, in this case, 1995. That was the year of the Million Man March in Washington DC, the PlayStation was first released in Europe, the Tokyo subway sarin gas attack happened, OJ Simpson got off with murder, the Unabomber's manifesto was published by the Washington Post and the New York Times, and the lowest temperature ever in the UK, minus 27.2, was recorded in Altnahara in the Scottish Highlands, only because they've never measured in my kitchen. Whilst memorable films from the year include Braveheart, Toy Story, how old do you feel now then, hearing that, Seven, and one of my favourite movies, The Usual Suspects. Absolutely great film. A million miles away from Kaiser Soze, however, the village of Burton Fleming in East Yorkshire, apart from that being a line that I bet you'd never ever thought that you'd hear, had been the home to Margaret and Edwin Wilson for most of their lives, certainly all of their married life, where they'd settled many years before and raised their four children. The village and its rural country surroundings was an area that they loved immensely, with Edwin, although at 68 years old rapidly advancing towards his retirement, still running Eastfield Farm, a 177-acre Grade 2 arable farm set back off the Burton Fleming to Rudston Road on the outskirts of the village, and farming being a vocation that his son Alan had followed him into from school, and who still worked with his dad at Eastfield Farm. 66-year-old Margaret, however, was content enough in the dynamic once much more common in a bygone era, the mother of four being happiest in the kitchen baking at the couple's home in the village being closely involved in village life and activities, catching up with her neighbours and friends, and particularly doting on her family, especially as several grandchildren. Life for the Wilsons had followed this pattern for many years, and it was very much a case of, if it isn't broken, then don't try and fix it. They worked hard and kept themselves busy, had a routine that worked for them, and were well respected and much liked in the close-knit community where they lived. The best way to probably describe them is that they were very happy as they were. That happiness was shattered on the afternoon of Thursday the 9th of February 1995. That day, a cold one across the country, and coincidentally, bit of a stat here, the day Riverdance, the stage show, first opened in Dublin, for all you Flatley fans out there. Edwin Wilson arose as usual at the crack of dawn and by 7.30am had headed out to Eastfield Farm to go to work. By an hour later, 66-year-old Margaret had arisen herself, had dressed and had headed out to the local village shop where as custom she bought a couple of copies of the daily newspaper and delivered one to a neighbour of the Wilsons, Jane Sutton, with whom Margaret had been friends for many years and whom she stopped to talk to for a few minutes. Returning home, Margaret then spent the rest of that morning baking cakes for an upcoming village fete. At noon, Edwin returned home for his lunch as per usual, and the Wilson's son Alan also arrived at the house at about 1pm, doing some odd jobs around the place for his ageing parents, before about 30 minutes later, 
the two men returned to the farm. Then, just after 2pm, Margaret's 39-year-old daughter Heather arrived around for a visit, and the two women spent an hour catching up and having afternoon tea, before at around 3.15pm, Heather gave her mother a lift part of the way along the road that leads from Burton Fleming to Rudston, past Eastfield Farm. The idea being that Margaret would take a brisk walk, something that she enjoyed at least once a day, back towards the village, taking in the pleasant scenery and the bracing February air. The epitome of an ordinary humdrum day. Shortly after 3.20pm, two other workers from Eastfield Farm, Nigel Houseman and Martin Hornsey, who were on tractors ploughing barrow fields, one of the fields belonging to the farm, saw Margaret walking along the road towards the direction of Burton Fleming. Then, a minute or so later, Nigel noticed what both he and Martin were to later describe as a white Montego estate car, parked a short distance behind Margaret, facing Rudston, the direction she was walking away from. He noticed that there was a man walking away from this car in the same direction as Margaret was heading, and then with growing alarm, watched as the man broke into a run. As he mentioned to his workmate Martin over the CB radio that, that both were equipped with that it appeared as though the man was chasing Margaret, Nigel watched in horror as the man caught up with her. All I saw was he seemed to lurch over her, and then they both disappeared from view behind the hedge, he was to later claim. Although both Nigel and Martin were at least 400 yards across the field from the entrance to it off the Burton Fleming Road, near where Margaret had disappeared from view, they were each off their tractors immediately as they saw this and sprinting hell for leather towards the road, but saw over the hedge as they were nearing that the man was by that time running back to the car. He got in and then the car started and sped off south towards Rudston. Both Nigel and Martin would later to describe that they estimated the Montego could have reached speeds of up to 80 miles per hour it was travelling that fast. Reaching the road, they tentatively made their way along the verge until they noticed Margaret Wilson, whom as their employer's wife, they both knew, lying face down in the grass. Both men could see, even from how she lay, that Margaret had an ugly gaping wound to the throat, blood having seeped from it onto the grass verge beneath her. Aside from a gurgling noise, which stopped as soon as it had started, there were no signs of life present to her, and both men knew how gravely injured she was. Martin flagged down a passing motorist, Jack Lewis, and telling him what had happened, asked him to raise the alarm. So only a few moments later, Jack drove into the premises of the nearest building, and spoke to the two men working on the forecourt. The building was Eastfield Farm, and the two men Jack spoke to were Margaret's son Alan and her husband Edwin. At the time not knowing their relationship to the victim, Jack described what had happened to the two men, and Edwin went off to raise the alarm, telephoning the emergency services to attend, before he and Alan went off down the road to offer assistance not for a second realising that the lady, who was already sadly beyond help, was Margaret, Edwin's wife and Alan's mother. 
Martin and Nigel were waiting by Margaret's body when Alan and Edwin arrived, and both in horror stood by aghast as it sank in just who that the elderly lady lying butchered before them was. As they stood there, unable to take it in, a passing nurse stopped a car and got out to offer her help. She examined Margaret briefly, checking for any signs of life, but sadly finding her beyond assistance. At around the same time, PC Stephen Kelly from Driffield Police Station was in Burton Fleming itself following up on a routine inquiry concerning a cold caller to the village, who'd been found and sent on his way, when he received a garbled message over the radio from his control centre. After heading to the edge of the village, where atmospherics were less and the reception was much improved, he once again requested the message that he dropped to be repeated, and was told, now this much clearer. Attend the Burton Fleming to Rudston Road. There's a dead old lady at the side of the road with her throat cut. Now feeling this was unlikely and had to be some mistake, because things like that shouldn't happen anywhere, should it? But duty bound to investigate anyway. PC Kelly headed to the location passed to him and was shocked to find that nope, it wasn't unlikely and was met with the shocking sight of Margaret Wilson lying dead at the side of the road. Asking the crowd of by now five people who were gathered at the scene if anyone knew who the lady was, Alan Wilson volunteered to him, almost on autopilot. Yes, she's my mum. You can't even imagine, can you? The proper stuff of nightmares, that, isn't it? Radio in the control room for reinforcements, PC Kelly now set up a major crime scene, foremost taking the step to cover Margaret's body with a blanket to preserve both evidence and her dignity, even in death. The road was sealed off at some distance from the initial scene either end, the area where Margaret lay was coned off separately in this cordon, and those gathered, Edwin, Alan, Martin, Nigel and the passing nurse, were moved a distance to the opposite side of the road. PC Kelly then made a note of what the witnesses Nigel and Martin had seen, marked the spot where the Montego had been seen parked with another cone, and then, under relayed supervision from the control centre at Hessel, began compiling a proper documented crime scene log, the area where the body lay, where the Montego was parked, and who'd entered both the inner and outer circle of the crime scene. As reinforcements arrived shortly, a forensic medical examiner and consultant pathologist both examined Margaret's body at the site and were in agreement that her death had been near instantaneous, probably caused by one of the two knife wounds that had slit Margaret's throat from ear to ear. The first senior officer to arrive was Detective Inspector John Curry from Beverly Police Station, who, after assessing the scene and arranging for the temporary crime scene established, to be replaced with a more standardised home office one, you know, the full shebang, tent over the scene, white paper suits, etc. Also requested that three victim liaison officers be dispatched to be with the Wilson family, Edwin, Alan and Heather, for support. A press officer arranged for details and a description of the Montego to be circulated, whilst a senior crime officer made a comprehensive photographic record of the murder scene. Polaroid photographs of Margaret in situ were taken, 
the approach to and from the point where Killer had met victim, plus marks that had been left on the verge from where it was estimated that the Montego had been parked. Three plaster casts of shoe impressions found in the immediate vicinity were also taken, and were fast-tracked to the Forensic Science Laboratory in Weatherby for examination, whilst another scene of crime officer made preparations to photograph the various stages of the post-mortem. The post-mortem on Margaret Wilson was carried out at the Spring Street Mortuary in Hull by Home Office Pathologist Dr John Clark during the early hours of Friday the 10th of February and his findings concurred with the initial examination at the scene that death had indeed been caused by two savage slashes to the throat and chin. Margaret had been attacked from behind, knocked down to her knees and whilst in this kneeling position had had a throat cut twice from left to right with a very sharp knife, one stroke lacerating her chin down to the bone and severing the jugular, the other being drawn across her throat with such force that it had damaged her spinal column. The killing had been swift, and perhaps mercifully in the circumstances, Margaret had died almost immediately from the massive blood loss. There was no sign of any robbery or any attempted sexual assault, Margaret's clothing appeared undisturbed, but Dr. Clark did note a large, deep bruise to the back of Margaret's right thigh, where a killer had apparently used his knee to incapacitate her and to bring her to the ground. So, I ask you, what kind of creature, in such a frenzy, does that to an elderly lady simply out for an afternoon walk? For what reason? Boggles the mind, doesn't it? It really, really does. Before the post-mortem, by tea time the previous day, as house-to-house -house inquiries were underway and being conducted at a number of outlying houses, farms and every property in the villages of Burton Fleming and Rudston, the murder inquiry had been launched from nearby Driffield Police Station, spearheaded by Detective Superintendent Tony Corrigan and his deputy, Detective Chief Inspector Martin Midgley. It was designated one of the highest priority labelled as a Category A inquiry. Now, what else you prioritise a granny being slaughtered on a country road in broad daylight is beyond me, of course. And 30 detectives had been assigned to work full-time on the investigation. The standard actions in any murder inquiry were underway, learning everything about who the victim was, looking at persons in the area with a known history of violence, that kind of thing and two detective constables from the neighbouring North Yorkshire force were also brought into the operation to assist on the inquiry due to their expertise with the Holmes system. An entry for the inquiry on Holmes, the Home Office Large Major Inquiry System, was created, with operational terminals to use Holmes installed in the incident room in Driffield to impose and keep some order of the likely large volume of statements, reports and other documents that the inquiry would generate. Yorkshire was still smarting from the sheer shamble of bollocks that the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry had turned into more than a decade before that allowed Sutcliffe's name to be lost in a mass of paperwork and serious lessons had been learnt from it. With consideration to the severe shock, fear and anxiety that was a given that the dreadful crime had caused within the small village them losing a member of its own, a police caravan was set up as a mobile incident command post on the village green 
and a conspicuous police presence was established in the village from just two hours after the murder. By that time, as news of the murder had spread, because things like that spread like Covid would at the bloody Glastonbury festival in a small village such as Burton Fleming, don't they? Several witnesses had already begun to come forward as a response to the house-to-house inquiries. A lady named Edith Morton reported that she'd been driving on the B1253 from Rudston at 3.25pm that afternoon and had at that time turned her car onto the road to Burton Fleming, where after a minute or so, she saw a white car that was pulled up on the verge at the side of the road, facing the direction that she was travelling from. As Edith drove past the car, she saw the driver get out of the vehicle, noticing that it was a male in dark clothing, although she didn't see the man's face, and begin walking in the direction of Burton Fleming. Seconds later, she passed Margaret Wilson, whom she knew, walking in the same direction, and glimpsing in the rearview mirror, she saw the man walking a distance behind Margaret, who it appeared didn't seem to realise that the man was there. Jack Lewis, the motorist who'd been flagged down by Martin Hornsey and Nigel Houseman, also made a statement that seconds before he'd been flagged down, he'd passed a light-coloured estate car, which he said was the size and shape of a Montego, travelling at high speed in the direction of Rudston. By the following morning then, Detective Superintendent Corrigan had briefed the murder incident room in Driffield that priority was to trace, implicate and eliminate the owners of all white Montegos in the East Yorkshire area. Two detectives were assigned to go through this exhaustive list, whilst Dr Richard Babcock, a psychologist at Wakefield Prison, had been contacted and given the known details of the murder and was preparing an offender profile of the killer as another priority. It had been decided to withhold the exact details of Margaret's injuries from the press for twofold reasoning. Only then would police and the killer know that she'd been cut twice, which could be used to eliminate any of the oddballs who come forward and falsely confess to things like this because they're bored or just general bellend, and that the close-knit community of Burton Fleming, many of them elderly, were already shocked enough by the murder, and details of such savagery would press down yet another level of fear on the village. You can see the reasoning behind it, can't you? Detective Inspector John Curry later explained, The public in Burton Fleming couldn't understand why it had happened. She was tremendously respected in that village, and they were absolutely stunned. The man who had done it was still out there, and the question was, can it happen again? People lived in that area with real fear for a long, long time. Now we'll resume after a short word from the episode's sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now 2020 has been a challenging and stressful year for everyone to say the least, hasn't it? And many of us out there are finding things difficult. For me personally, I found it hard being separated from my loved ones and trying to ensure that I'm there for them as best and as safely as I can be, whilst trying to get that good balance in my work life, my personal life, and the podcasting role around all of this on top. Well, it does have its hard moments, what can I say? So, if something's interfering with your happiness or well-being, or is preventing you from achieving your goals, this is where better help can help you. 
Just to be clear, this isn't self-help. What BetterHelp does is assesses any issues that you may be facing and matches you up with your own selected licensed professional therapist for professional counselling. With the broad range of expertise that BetterHelp has available, some of which you may not be able to get locally to you, and with specialists in a vast and varying range of issues, from depression through to grief, in less than 24 hours you can begin communicating with a counsellor in a confidential, safe and private online environment, all without the uncomfortableness that goes with sitting around waiting for an appointment in a waiting room, because nobody likes that, do they? Once you start communicating, you'll get timely and thoughtful responses from your counsellor, plus you can schedule weekly video or telephone sessions with them, you can message them anytime you need to. The service is much more affordable than traditional offline counselling, with financial aid even available for the service if it's needed, and better help is available for clients worldwide. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com, forward slash, T-C-E. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Now you must have heard of Best Fiends, right? Whenever I'm in the middle of writing or researching the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, it's Best Fiends that I find myself playing when I need a bit of downtime. It's a colourful and fun puzzle strategy game that's challenging enough to make you proper ponder your moves, but it's also a casual enough game that anyone can play, so it won't stress you out. And before you know it, you'll have motored through zones from the ominous ocean right through to Mushroom Valley, defeating slugs, grabbing diamonds, and collecting and using lively colourful little characters such as Lapoleon and Whisper as you progress through. Best Fiends is being constantly updated with themed challenges, events and new levels, so it always feels like a fresh game. And I've found myself whilst playing it, if I get to a certain level that's particularly challenging, some are a bit more than others, I'm thinking, oh, it was close then, I'll just try that one again, and before you know it, you'll really wonder where the time has gone, you'll be that hooked on it. It's a perfect pastime in these times of social distancing we're in, as it's one way you can stay connected to your friends online and share progress as you casually compete, or you can play it by yourself. You don't even need to be connected online to enjoy playing Best Fiends. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Best Fiends, friends without the R, Best Fiends. Now, a cursory search of the crime scene on the Burton Fleming Road had already been performed on the afternoon of the murder with the road closed off. But early on the next morning, the Friday, a force plan drawer who'd been brought in to plot the surrounding area of where Margaret had been killed saw something glinting underneath a hedge near to the spot where Margaret's body had been found. Examining further, he discovered that it was a knife 
about 12 centimetres in length with a black plastic handle, embossed with the words J. Adams, Sheffield, England. The spot underneath the hedgerow where the planner had found it was equidistant between the spot where Margaret's body was found and the spot where the killer's vehicle had been parked. By midday, the knife had already been forensically examined. No fingerprints were able to be removed from the black-handled knife, but the blade was found to have traces of blood on it of the same blood group as Margaret Wilson's, as well as an unidentifiable black stain on the blade, created from the instrument repeatedly being used to cut something. The murder weapon, as it was established that the knife was, was sketched and photographed, and then Detective Constable Nigel Ling began the process of tracing its origin, whilst the knife itself went back to the Forensic Science Services at Weatherby for further examination and testing to try and identify the composition of this unidentified stain on the blade. Find what that was, then you may find the origin of the knife, and you're that one step closer to the killer, aren't you? Yeah, well in this case, police were dismayed at the results. It was soon discovered that that particular type of knife was an industrial one, used by a range of vocations and industries from farming to fisheries, and was manufactured by a company in the Sheffield area called J. Adams, who supplied professional quality industrial knives to companies nationwide, including Boots the Chemist, Walker's Crisps and Jacob's Bakery, and supplied no less than 19 large companies in the East Yorkshire area alone. The knives sold in great volume, as you can imagine, but J. Adams' biggest local customer was the large employer McCain's, the manufacturers of pizzas, oven chips and other foodstuffs in the nearby town of Scarborough. Now, a bit of an aside, I don't know if you're like me here, but I do love an oven chip, and I'm actually not too fussy about which ones I have either, so there's no McCain's loyalty here. It was discovered that over the previous nine months, McCain's alone had bought more than 1,300 of the knives that were identical to the one found at the scene of the murder. Seemingly a piece of hay in a massive stack full of needles then. I can't say it the other way around anymore now being a Blackadder fan. When the psychological profile of the killer arrived from Dr Badcock, Alongside the standard points that one would expect to be raised on it, male, athletic, right-handed, etc., it's said that the killer would be in full-time employment of the manual type and would probably use such a knife in the course of this employment. He'd likely be a shift worker. Why else would he be out killing at that time of a standard working day if he wasn't? Would be in a long-term relationship and would be familiar with the area, if not living nearer, than living within a 25 mile radius of the murder scene. There was also the possibility that he had at some point been in the armed forces, a nod to the military method of incapacitation with which the killer had floored Margaret, the knee to the back of the thigh, and that to perhaps bolster his self-esteem or to relive the killing, he may possibly have taken a souvenir from the scene. Although Margaret Wilson's clothing had appeared to be undisturbed, she was found to be missing a scarf. A press conference was held only a couple of days after the murder 
in which Margaret's shattered daughter Heather, flanked by Detective Superintendent Corrigan and DCI Midgley, made the following statement. I don't think it was premeditated. It was spur of the moment, which, which is what makes it so awful. I know the crazy person who did this to my mother will do it again. My mother got killed simply because she happened to be there, right on the doorstep of the farm where she'd lived for many years. He's going to do it again, so please, somebody, if they do know something, please, because my mother was the most innocent person around. And Margaret seemingly was. As is standard with all investigations, the life of the victim has to be scrutinised. There may of course be someone who comes to light with a grudge against them, or someone discovered with a serious motive for murder, but in Margaret's case, nothing was found. The family were happy, they had no money worries, there was no question of any extramarital relationship at all. Indeed, no one came to light who even had a bad word to say about Margaret, let alone one her dead in such a horrific way, so no one could have planned to kill her specifically. Although she often walked along that particular road, as you do when your home area holds familiarity like that for you, Margaret had no set time for her walks, so there was no way someone could have predicted her movements and been lying in wait specifically for her without being spotted there. She'd not reported anyone stalking her leading up to the murder, or had any long-standing quarrels or feuds with anybody. The family had no enemies, nothing. This was simply a doting grandmother, well-liked and highly respected. Chosen at random by a passing maniac with murder in mind. Meanwhile, the local publicity and house-to-house -house inquiries were still producing more witnesses as the next few days passed. Several reported a white or light silver Montego estate car at various times the previous Thursday, some before and some after the murder. Two women, Louise, Louise Gray and Karen Holloway, recalled that they'd been driving near to Burton Fleming on the afternoon of the murder, when they'd seen a light-coloured car travelling in the opposite direction at some speed. Despite this, Louise claimed that she'd gotten enough of a good look at the driver to be able to work with a police sketch artist to create an impression of the man in a drawing. Another woman, a newcomer to the Burton Fleming area, Linda Rounding, reported to police that she'd seen a white Montego estate car drive past her house three, possibly four times in the two hours before the murder, stating, I recognised the model straight away. We'd been seriously considering buying one ourselves. Each time he went past, it was as if he was prowling. That's what really drew my attention. Linda went on to describe a driver who she placed as being over 30 years of age, dark-haired and perhaps having stubble, who she thought had been wearing a green wax-type jacket. So a pretty good witness then. We shall learn just how good a witness she was throughout the course of the tale. But another witness in particular had equally, if not more crucial information to tell police, although she didn't come forward until a week after the murder, so frightened was she. The woman, Marie Cundall, who lived in Burton Fleming, visited the mobile incident room on the afternoon of Friday the 17th of February, 
several days after the house-to-house officers had visited her. Whereas Marie had been so fearful during that initial visit that she'd kept stum, by now she'd steeled herself and had an important sighting to report. On the afternoon of the murder, only shortly before it, at about 3.15pm, Marie had left her house to take a German shepherd dog for a walk along a customary dog walking route, heading eastwards on the village's South Street in a looping route that took her to the signpost at the fork of where South Street meets the Burton Fleming to Rudston Road and back home again. After several minutes out walking, Marie was on the return leg of her journey when she heard a car behind her, which as it drew level slowed down. Thinking it was someone about to ask her directions to somewhere, Marie turned to face the vehicle, and her eyes met the driver's. She explained to police, As soon as I saw his face, I knew there was no way he was going to ask me for directions, and that I was in trouble. It was the sheer anger in his face. I've never seen anybody look so angry. He had the most terrible piercing eyes as though they were going to come through the driver's side glass the way he was staring. After staring like this at her for some 20 to 30 seconds, the man then drove off and turned into the road to Rudston, whilst Marie, the fear of God having been put into her by the man, hurried home clutching her dog close to her. She later described the car as being an off-white large estate type, one that she believed could possibly have had a dog guard fixed in the back seat also. Now what made this sighting so crucial was the length of time that Marie had seen the man's face for, and that she could remember it clearly. The following day, she helped a police sketch artist create an impression of the man she'd seen, and this time a different artist was used to the one that Louise Gray had worked with to create her identikit picture which still created a very similar likeness between the two impressions. After studying the two images, it was decided to use the latter impression as had been described by Marie, as it was deemed that she'd seen the man's face for a longer period, and his statement concerning the sighting was more detailed. This is the description that went onto the appeal poster for Margaret's murder. Now I've placed both impressions up side by side in a picture on the show's Instagram page for you to have a look at and see what you guys think. I was very struck by the likeness. Now what could have been the same man was sighted earlier that day also. A woman, Wendy Price, came forward and told police that on the day of the murder, sometime between 1 and 1.30pm, She'd been out riding a horse about 10 miles away from Burton Fleming when a man in a white car had turned off the road and had followed her when she'd headed down a bridle path. He drove past her and then pulled into a clearing ahead, waiting for her to catch up. She explained to police that she was in no doubt that the man meant her harm. His eyes just glared right through me and my defence mechanisms told me to get the hell out of there, she said. So Wendy had ridden off like a scalded cat and had not stopped to look back and take any further details of the vehicle or the man's description. Throughout the investigation, police also looked for possible links to other active inquiries across the country with similar circumstances, feeling that this couldn't have been a first-time offence, the killing carried out with too swift precision it was felt but police felt there were none at the time with any credible similarities to Margaret's murder. 
I disagree, but we'll get to that. They did discount several. Incidentally, one that was looked at, indeed one that was seriously considered as being linked for a period of time, but ultimately discounted, a double murder, happens to be a case that I've already researched for a future episode. So watch this space as ever, folks. It will be coming next series now, that one. And they were also still considering the possibility of a military connection with the killer. There were a number of military bases in the nearby area at the time. The Defence School of Transport is located at Leckenfield, near the town of Beverley. And in Driffield itself, there was a base that, although was in the process of being run down, was at the time still semi-operational. Meanwhile, the murder being so shocking, it was a prime fit for inclusion on guess what? Have you guessed? Good old Crime Watch UK, of course. What else is it going to be? It was in its proper heyday back then, well-established and much-loved, still on and going strong. Thanks very much, BBC. Ace of you, that. The Crime Watch production team had monitored the case as it had been reported, and by the 24th of February, they had liaised with the investigating team, and it had been decided to screen a reconstruction and an appeal concerning Margaret's murder to be aired on the Crime Watch edition going out on Thursday the 16th of March. Now very frustratingly, this edition isn't one of the ones available for viewing online to research. One of the very few times that the legend that's Redcard74 or the other users who upload old Crime Watch shows to YouTube have missed the swing there, so the edition isn't in the episode show notes for viewing. But what was known about the murder was reenacted, filmed and aired as part of the appeal. Marie's sighting of the staring driver that had frightened her whilst out walking her dog, Margaret's fatal walk along the Burton-Fleming Road, and the sighting of the killer by Nigel and Martin. The appeal showed the artist's impression of the killer that Marie had helped create, gave details and a description of the Montego car, and also showed on the programme the murder weapon, not an exact replica of it, but the actual weapon itself. Although Nick Ross expressed the reluctance that the programme had to show actual murder weapons on screen, out of sensitivity I suppose and perhaps it creeping people out a bit as well, he highlighted to the viewer the reason exactly why the actual murder weapon had been shown in this case, drawing attention to the still as yet unidentified black stain on the blade. Now, Out of the almost 1,500 calls that were received between both the studio and the incident room in East Yorkshire following the appeal, with one account that I used for research putting this at Crime Watch's biggest ever response for a single item, although I don't know how factual that claim is, and I can think of others that have claimed that as well, at least three different names were suggested for the possible identity of the killer, but after investigation, these suggested were ruled out. The majority of these remaining calls were suggestions for the origin and possible use of the knife and what process could have caused the staining. Now, as you can imagine, the list of actions that these suggestions would have generated that would subsequently need eliminating was about as appealing as rewinding this year back to March and starting it again from there, but one of the calls received promised to cut all of that out. The call was from a professor at Sheffield Hallam University named Alan Worth, who knew about the murder before the programme had aired, 
as he had family living in the locality of Burton Fleming. He'd watched the Crime Watch broadcast later that evening as his wife had recorded it for him, and upon being struck by how much the actress portraying Margaret in the reconstruction had looked like his own mother, Professor Worth had contacted the incident room to offer his assistance. In what way, you may ask? Well, Professor Worth was a professor of metallurgy, and speaking to one of the detectives in the incident room at Driffield, told them that although he had no idea what had made the stain on the knife blade from viewing, he was certainly in a position to help them find out what it was, or to at least narrow down the list. He explained that Sheffield Hallam University had a scanning electron microscope, the biggest of its kind in the UK, and by using images of the knife that were produced by this, which could scan the entire blade in one piece, he could construct a virtual fingerprint of the elements that combined to make both the blade and the stain. It could reveal what the stain was, but not how much of it there was, but over a prolonged examination, it could be determined what exactly the knife had been used to cut, how many times it had been sharpened. It could even determine the kind of water that it had been washed in. Fine analysis like this offered detectives the possibility of tracing the knife to a particular workplace, yet another parameter for them to narrow down the suspect list by. Game on, Alan. Over the next few weeks then, samples of several knives were sent to Professor Worth, and a number that had been collected from the potato trimming line at McCain's, who remember, were the biggest customer of J. Adams knife manufacturers in the East Yorkshire area, were found to display remarkably uniform staining. In fact, when they were carefully compared against the murder weapon, they were an almost exact match. Further knives for testing were obtained, specifically from McCain's, and were now tested on all manner of foodstuffs used in the processing there, in an attempt to demonstrate the distinct differences between staining that was left by various organic substances coming into contact with steel blades. Every foodstuff used in the manufacturing process of McCain's products was sourced, and each of these were then freshly sliced with fresh knives, identical to the murder weapon, with the blades being left embedded in the vegetables over a four-day period. It was a time-consuming process, all this, but by the end of June 1995, Professor Worth had managed to prove that the knife used in the murder had been one employed specifically to cut potatoes, and had come unquestionably from McCain's. The microscopic pattern from blades tested on potatoes were indistinguishable from the stain on the murder weapon, and undisputably ones from McCain's as I said. Professor Worth had not only made comparisons of knives from 19 different companies that were supplied by J. Adams, but he had also made analysis of the water from each site, and only McCain's produced the characteristic changes that he discovered on the murder weapon. Legend, eh? And Professor Worth never wanted for chips or knives again. Then, a week after the Crime Watch broadcast had aired, Linda Rounding, the lady who had told of the white Montego she'd seen driving past a house on three or four occasions on the afternoon of the murder, rang the incident room with new information. Detectives who visited her as a result listened, somewhat incredulously I must add, as she now explained that she'd seen the same car once again, after Crime Watch UK had been on, 
and this time she had made a note of the vehicle's registration number. It had come to her in a dream. Oh yeah. Detectives checked the number of the vehicle that she'd given and found that it was indeed a white Montego and was registered to a man who lived not far away from Burton Fleming and one who was known to police as he had a history of violence. However, when the man was questioned, he was able to provide an irrefutable alibi for the day of the murder. He'd been on a building job nearby all day with a friend of his, who was able to verify this alongside the householder that they'd been working for. Now, concerned how Linda had come by that particular registration number, detectives spoke to her once again about her information, and this time she admitted that she had not had a dream. She'd seen the car on the street and thought that the driver of it bore a resemblance to the artist's impression that had been shown on the Crime Watch appeal. Why she felt the need to come up with the whole having a dream bloody saga is anybody's guess. Margaret Wilson's body was eventually released by the coroner and her funeral took place more than four months after her murder held on the 21st of June in a crowded service at St Cuthbert's Church in Burton Fleming. Although Margaret's living will had expressed firmly that she was to be cremated in the event of her death, because the murder inquiry was still active and ongoing, she had to be instead interred, owing to the opportunity for a second post-mortem to be carried out should one be required as course of the investigation. Officers from the investigating team attended the service alongside Margaret's shattered family, friends and neighbours, and a surveillance video was even made of the mourners who attended, because you never know just who may turn up, do you? In mid-November 1995, Detective Inspector John Curry of the Murder Investigation Team attended an offender profiling lecture held at Hull University and given by Detective Constable Simon Wells, a Metropolitan Police Officer and member of the Bramshill Crime Faculty. He approached DC Wells after the lecture and spoke to him about the Wilson murder, resulting in an outcome that the crime faculty would put together a group to take an objective look over the inquiry. A month later, a team from Bramshill visited Driffield to present their findings, which summarised is that they'd looked at the available evidence, no distinct suspect but rather too many, and no one with a previous conviction for committing such a crime. But it wasn't as unhelpful as I've made it sound there, because the Bramshill team did offer that after having spent weeks studying the inquiry team files, and having weighed up the accumulated data that the inquiry team had amassed, there was a person of interest that the crime faculty felt all investigative energies should be concentrated on going forth. This person had been spoken to twice before already in the inquiry, the first time just two days after the murder, and the crime faculty had opined that his probable link to the case was on the basis of his locality to the murder scene, his car and his workplace, and it was their advisement that the inquiry team should get to know the guy better than his own mother did, absolutely everything about him, however trivial. His name? Well, we should get to his name in the next episode as that's a perfect place within the tale to leave it for this time around. And there is a fair bit more to this one yet. 
Horrific tale or what though, eh? Something like that shouldn't happen anyway. It would even horrify you in fiction, that, wouldn't it? So as there is at least one other part, I say at least because I thought Lynn's tale would only be two episodes long, and Maniac, a trilogy first off, and neither of those bloody happened, did they? So these things do tend to go on sometimes, but they go on as long as I feel that it takes to tell the story as best as I can. So I'll save my usual roundup and waffle here, we'll do all of that at the tale's conclusion. I do hope that it's one that's held your interest so far anyway, and I look forward to bringing you the next part of it next time around. Same bat time, same bat channel, which I'm going to go off and start putting together now. I thank you for joining me here today, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys good and safe times, keep it together all, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care folks, and goodbye for now.